Okay, good morning one and all and happy resurrection weekend again. We're going to go before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon his word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've granted us to come and gather around the person of Christ and hear what he has done for his people in saving them from their sin. We pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to all your people of the truth of Christ and also for those who have not had the gospel to come to the truth of who Christ is and what he has done and what that means. We pray and we honor you, Lord, for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning again. We are in Romans chapter 3. And this morning we are going to be working our understanding from verses 1 to 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, and that's going to be from the New King James Version. And as always, we read our text. We don't assume that people have read their Bible. Some people don't have Bibles, <laughs> even, to be honest. So we never assume that people have read the Bible. So Romans 3, 1 to 20, Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded and said, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Would their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Let me repeat that. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that God may come as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say the condemnation is just. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin as it is written. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of us is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery 
uh, in their ways, in the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that is the word of the Lord. And we have one title this morning. Are we better than they? Are we better than they? And we are back to the book of Romans again to continue with our verse by verse teaching of the text. And this is our message installment number eight. And Apostle Paul is working the foundations or pillars of the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace and its necessity. These are the points that need to be understood if any should sing amazing grace because grace that is dependent on the doing and willing of a sinner is no grace. Grace that one looks for is not grace. Grace looks for the sinner. Grace finds the sinner and brings them home as the good shepherd of the sheep is he who looks for their lost sheep and when they find it, they bring it home. And so Paul has opened the book of Romans and taught us about the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith, the righteousness that is in the gospel of Christ Jesus. And this is the subject matter of his gospel, but it has surrounding matters or issues, points that need to be understood or else we end up believing another gospel. The gospel is good news coming to a people who are not very good. It is coming to those who are citizens of the Romans 1 country, Romans 1 nation, who are wicked and wild idolaters. They suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And in the end, they worship themselves. And even the creatures that God created, the wild beasts, four-footed animals and creeping things, they even encourage and approve other people who do the same things to sin the more and yet knowing God's righteous judgment that those who do such things are worthy of death, worthy of condemnation, worthy of hell. And that to say misery loves company, the more the merrier. That's what people say, right? <laughs> the more the merrier. 
But God says these people have no excuse. In other words, none has any excuse before God with respect to unrighteousness. God justly condemns everyone for their sin. Because what can be known about him has been made evident to all men. is clearly seen by that which God has created. The invisible God has made himself visible through the things that he has done. And in this state of suppressing the truth of God, men and women are condemned and are hopeless. But it doesn't end there. There are those among them, from among the pagans, who are moral, very moral pagans. They consider themselves very good people and believe that if God exists, whoever he is, he surely is pleased with them. After all, look at me. <laughs> they look clean outside. Whitewashed tombs, as Jesus said. They do surely agree with Paul that the situation in Romans chapter 1 is out of control. And it was high time someone with sense did something about it. So these are the moralists who think they are above the fray, judging themselves by themselves. But Paul says, you are no better. You actually do the very things that you condemn in others. You are guilty of the very things that you condemn in others. So you too, in spite of your high moralism, are guilty and condemned and hopeless. Your moralism will not help you to escape God's judgment. And so that is the danger of judging salvation, judging eternal matters based on moralism. Because there are a lot of highly moral people who hate Christ, who hate the gospel of Jesus. So, the gentle world has been condemned. The good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and the Jew, hearing this, cheers Paul on and says, that is the way to go, Paul. That is the way to go. Get them. Because we, the Jews, know that these Gentiles, these pagans, to be out of control and deserve God's judgment. The Jew agrees with Paul when it comes to Romans chapter 1. But Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, does not entertain that from the Jews and says, You Jews who rest your confidence in the law and make your boast in God are also in trouble just as the rest. You are no better. This is your claim of righteousness. Speaking to the Jews, Romans 2, 17 and 21. This is where the Jew is. 
in respect of their understanding of salvation, they say, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. The Jew rests their confidence in the law-keeping and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And these are rhetoric questions because Paul's assumption is, that's exactly what they do. They commit adultery, they steal, they rob temples. You Jews think that you are better people just because of a mere possession of the law. But you break the very law every day. You do under the law the very things that the pagans are doing without the law. You steal, you commit adultery, you make a bust in the law, of your righteousness under the law, and yet dishonor God by breaking the very law. The name of God, Paul says, is blasphemed, is dishonored among the pagans because of your sin, because the law has not made you better people. The law does not make better people. So you are hopeless, just as the rest. There's no person who has understood what the law is saying who boss in the law. There's not a sane person, a right-thinking person, spiritually, who understands what the law is demanding, who boss in their law-keeping. That is the truth. If anyone is still boasting about the law-keeping, they are still not converted. Because the Holy Spirit cannot take the redeemed back to the custody of Moses. He doesn't get you to go back to Moses for your Cheerios and milk. He doesn't do that. Because Christ is enough. Christ is enough. There are many people who claim to be doing the law and to them repentance means going back and trying to make it right with the law, to make amends with the law. They'll come up with all kinds of interesting theological expressions and gymnastics. But in the end, the very law will condemn them for their unrighteousness. Paul says to the Jew, you need to understand the matter of law and righteousness and the proper Jewish identity. The proper Jewish identity is a spiritual reality. Your physical circumcision means nothing if you do not keep the law. Your physical circumcision does not commend you before God. It won't recommend you to God. There's nothing external that you do that recommends you before God. 
because God does not judge according to external things. He doesn't judge according to external rites and symbols of religion. That's why Jesus said to the Jews again, you whitewashed supplicants. You look clean on the outside, but inside you are full of all uncleanness and dead men's bones. Yeah? So the issue with law-keeping is an internal spiritual reality. Here this Romans 2, 28 to 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the latter, whose praise is not from man, but from God, so the real circumcision is that which is internal, that which is done by the Spirit of God, and that means the definition of a Jew takes another dimension. The circumcision done internally by God, which means there's not a person who can cause your spiritual circumcision. I cannot cause your spiritual circumcision. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not anybody. There's not a parent who causes the salvation of their children. This is the work of God alone. It is a circumcision which is not done by hands. It is done by God the Spirit. And that Spirit and letter distinction is very critical to understanding and believing God's gospel. Pay attention to what Paul said. In the spirit, not in the letter. See the distinction. We are notorious for making that distinction between the spirit and the letter, and the letter stands for the law. The spirit stands for the whole gospel of Christ Jesus. So the spirit language is eschatological language and is speaking to a new era that has been ushered in by the advent of Christ Jesus. Spirit language is not congruent with the latter language. One has to be retired. They don't share the same room together. There are no sleepovers between Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac representing the spirit and Ishmael representing those who are under the law, the children of Hagar. Isaac and Ishmael don't get to have sleepovers, so you don't get to mix the law and the spirit. Please, people, this is not an antinomian idea. This is the gospel testimony. The letter had its own era. It had its own time that has come to an end because of Christ. Christ is the end of the letter to everyone who believes. So the spirit circumcision is ultimately what alone counts. It comes down 
to the spiritual work of God in a person and not to genealogy. And that was some really offensive stuff to hear from Apostle Paul. And that is why the Jews hated Paul and wanted him dead. The law causes one to receive praise from men for their law obedience. Look at her. Look at him. Such an obedient person. (laughs) But those circumcised by the Spirit of God receive their praise from God. How is that even possible? How does God praise one who is a sinner? Praise from God because of Christ. Praise from God because they boast in the cross alone, in Christ alone, grace alone. If you want praise from God, you have to boast in Christ alone. That's the only way to get praise from God. So that leaves the physical Jew in limbo, very confused, because they think, oh, we are the people of God. Look at our physical circumcision. It leaves them confused and mad, even angry, because the rag has been pulled from underneath their feet. But Paul is not done with his treatment of the Jewish question in the context of the gospel. This is a very important issue that Paul is dealing with. He has some questions to ask and then answer in his discourse. And in this section of Romans 3 verse 1 to 8, It's a very challenging section to interpret. But God will give us grace as we continue to unfold the understanding. Now Paul goes into a style of reasoning in which he makes an assertion and then works the false conclusions that one may have because of what Paul said. And in this, Paul may have been using his internal logic, his inner logic, to develop the arguments. Or there were some people who were raising those questions against him. Let us hear this. That tells you that we are in Romans 3 verse 1. Paul asked the question, what advantage then as the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? This would have been a very interesting discourse to both the Jew and Gentile. Do Jews have any continuing advantages or prerogatives in the light of the gospel? Where do they stand? What advantage then as a Jew, given what we have just learned, especially in that they did not keep the law and are also righteously judged by God as the Gentiles 
judged as sinners, judged as condemned. What is the profit of circumcision? What is the advantage of circumcision? I thought Paul had just undone that in Romans 2, verses 17 to 29. But here, how he responds. Verse 2. Paul says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul says the Jew still has some advantage in that God made them his librarians. The Jews were God's chosen people to keep record his oracles. So they were librarians. God committed his scriptures to them. His scriptures about the Messiah who was to come and was to come from them according to the flesh. Paul says, chiefly, or first of all, in other translations, but he ended up not working the other related points, but he says, chiefly, like point number one, but he never brings point number two or number three. <laughs> but this lays down the foundation for what Paul would develop and argue later in Romans chapter 9 to 11. He's going to pick up on this topic and develop it some more. For instance, this is what Paul says in Romans 9, 1 to 5. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I have unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Listen to this. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God through the temple ministry, and the promises of salvation, the promises of the Messiah, of whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So the Jews have all these advantages over the Gentiles, but the Gentiles did not have all that anywhere. The Gentiles were busy kicking it. So now, to the question of their unfaithfulness or unbelief, because the Jews are not believing the gospel. The very people who had the oracles of God are not believing what the oracles were saying. What do we do with their unfaithfulness? Unfaithfulness to what? Unfaithfulness to the scriptures and the covenant of the law to which they were bound. The Jews, Israel, were under the covenant of Mount Sinai and they were unfaithful to it. The Jews did not believe in the promises of God with respect to Christ. They were expecting the Messiah to come. But when he showed up, they did not receive him. They rejected him. Israel 
dismally failed to keep the law. And God several times had come and heavily chastised them for it. He sent them many times into captivity. Assyrian, Babylonian, captivities. And even now, much of Israel has rejected the gospel of Christ Jesus. They are still in their Judaism. So Paul says, in verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Will the unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So, if some of the Jews did not believe, with God having made commitments to them, will the unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Does it make void God's faithfulness to them? That's what Paul is saying. Does that nullify God's faithfulness to them? In other words, are God's promises dependent on the faithfulness of the sinner or on his faithfulness? That's the question that Paul is asking and demonstrating using Israel as an example. Does God's purpose depend on your faithfulness in anything? It doesn't matter what. Does it depend on your faithfulness? Another question related to that. Does your sin undo what God has promised to do? For you in Christ, does your sin and your unfaithfulness cause God to change his mind about what he promised to do for you in Christ? The answer is no. (laughs) I could ask it this way. But the very important question to understand is salvation dependent on your willing or running? Is salvation dependent on anything that you do? And that is a rhetorical question and the expected answer is verse 4. May it never be. (laughs) May it never be. Certainly not. God forbid. Indeed, let God be true but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Let God continue to be true Because he is true, he is unchangeable, he is faithful to himself and his words and his promises. He doesn't change his mind because he doesn't learn about anything, especially about your unfaithfulness and mine. He already knows. But every man is a liar. The best of man is a liar even under oath. Even under oath, the best of man is a liar. And none is exempt from that judgment. And that's coming from Psalm 116, verse 11. I said in my haste, all men are liars. <laughs> and the second part comes from David in the wake of Bathsheba. Psalm 51, 2 to 4. The second part of verse 4 comes from Psalm 51, 2 to 4, where 
David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. My sin is always before me. And some people said, oh, they've progressed in righteousness. Their sin is not there before them anymore. David, the man, after God's own heart, says, cleanse me from my sin. (laughs) My sin is always before me. Always, continually. It's always before me. I'm not getting any better. If David had a chance, he would have pulled another Bathsheba. Pashiba Pato. I'm telling you, you would have done it. And you still have remained God's servant. Against you, you only have I sinned. Not against Uriah, but you. And you only have I sinned. And have done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And David is saying, God is righteous in the judgment of sin, even in his people, even for sin that he ordained to be done because he's the sovereign one. Yes, all sin was ordained of God. Otherwise, there would be some sin that you could do that was not covered by the death of Christ. If there's a single sin that Jesus did not pay for you, you are in serious trouble. Jesus had to have paid all of your sins of all time. And he knew every one of them. Okay? I was going to expand on that David and Bathsheba, but let's go. Let's keep moving. I have other things to say. Let's go back to Romans 3 verse 5. Paul says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? See the argument. Paul says, if our sin, if our unrighteousness demonstrates, shows, displays, accentuates the righteousness of God, it gives the contrast between the sinner and God. What is the conclusion? Is God and just who inflicts wrath. I speak as a man. Paul says, this is what he's saying. If one does not think about the matter correctly, they're going to draw a false conclusion from what he has just said. That's what Paul is saying. It would mean that God should not even judge sin since sin demonstrates his righteousness. In fact, it would be unjust for God to judge anyone for their sin. Thus, let us sin the more that God's righteousness may be demonstrated even more, that it may be amplified. And the latter problem would be that if God does not and cannot judge the guilty Jews for their sin, then he would not have any basis of judging the sinful world. And Paul says, I'm using a simple human argument. I speak as a man and I 
appeal to your rationality if you have any. So is God unjust who inflicts wrath on sinners? Even though their sin magnifies his righteousness. Because if my sin is going to amplify God's righteousness, he should just wink at it. Verse 6, Paul responds and says, God forbid. For then how will God judge the world? God could not judge the world if he did not judge any kind of sin. And it doesn't matter from who. Because God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of angels even. Those who sinned, he kicked them out. Everyone is judged of their sin. The difference is this. All the elect sins were judged in another. All the sins of the elect were judged. But they were judged in another person. They were already judged in Christ. And that is why Jesus said in John 5.24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believe in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Those who believe in him shall not come into the judgment because they have already been judged in Christ. Okay, now, to the second question of Romans 3, verse 7, Paul is continuing with his arguments and says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? It is a similar line of reasoning. And it is saying If my lies increase the truth of God to his glory, why should I be judged for my lies? And that is to say, it would be unfair if God would judge me or anyone for their lies since they would help to make the truth more evident. I should lie the more so that the contrast between lies and truth can be clearly seen. And this is the argument made by unbelievers. They say, sin should surely benefit God's glory because his truth and righteousness are magnified by it. That statement is true. Your sin and mine, they magnify the glory of God. But then, the second part of the statement, because of that, he should not turn around and judge it. People don't want the judgment of it because that is unfair. How could God benefit in his glory and then come judge me? The problem is God's glory is also in the judgment of the sin. Don't judge and it is unfair are the two most common expressions or objections by unbelievers. Oh, don't judge me. Oh, don't stop judging. 
Oh, it's unfair. <laughs> but the arguments continue. Verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say to the people who are making slanderous statements against Paul and his gospel. And Paul says their condemnation is just. So the charges against Paul and his gospel were that Paul, if all that you're saying is true, the salvation is of grace alone, then let us do evil that good things may come. After all, the gospel came because of our sin, then let us do more evil that more good things will happen to God and ourselves. And Paul did not respond to those slanderers. What did he do? He assigned them to God and said their condemnation is just. That's the last part of verse 8. Their condemnation is just. So Paul is saying, those who question God's right to condemn sin are committing blasphemy because to their way of thinking, God is unjust in doing this. And there are many professing Christians who rail against God's free and sovereign grace. I'm sure you've heard people who said, if your God created some to salvation and others to condemnation, then I do not want anything to do with him. Your God is a monster. Unfortunately, that's the only God there is. That's the only God there is. That's the only God that you have to deal with. And Paul says those who question God this way show themselves to be condemned of God. Those who have been taught of God, they get on their knees and praise him for his grace and mercy in serving them. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? (laughs) That's the title of our message. Are we better than they? As the physical Jews, Paul is here speaking from the camp of the Jews and saying, are we better than they Gentiles? Given our advantages, yes, the Jews had advantages. But God does not give them preferential treatment. Paul says, are we more preferred than the Gentiles who did not know God, who did not have any oracles? And if you want, we can extend it and say, are we better than those that were accusing Paul in the discourse above? Are we better than those people who think this way and are condemned? Are we better than the Roman Catholics this morning and their foolishness? The Armenians, the Buddhists, the Hindus? Are we better than any of the citizens of Romans one country? Are we better than anybody anywhere on this planet That's the ultimate question. Are we better? As far as God is concerned, are we better than anybody? But some people think they are better people. Some people think they are more civilized people because they pay their bills on time. They are decent people. Well put 
well assembled, put together, no freckles on the skin. <laughs> I'm serious. Look at me, I'm pretty. They still believe what grandma and grandpa told them when they were like two years old. Are we better than they? Paul says, not at all. Not at all. For we have previously charged them. Both Jews and Gentiles, or both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. So that's the matter here. It's not a matter of physical differences. Not racial differences. Not economic status. Not class or whatever distinctions that people may want to assign to another group of people. Paul says we are not different. Because all are under sin. So the evidence that Jews had no preferred position or status, Paul says, is that both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. They are united together under sin. All are under the power of sin, the control of sin, and the condemnation of sin. And being under the power of sin, none is able of their own power, of their own will, to break away from sin. You cannot break away from sin using a New Year's resolution. You cannot fight sin with a New Year's resolution. You cannot fight sin by just fasting, not eating Doritos or chocolate or giving up or whatever. That's not how you fight sin. You can't free yourself. So sin and its condemnation is what unites all of humanity because all men die. The wages of sin is death. That's what unifies all of us as humanity. All humanity is laboring under the power of sin. And to illustrate his point Paul quoted from six Old Testament verses to say even the Old Testament witnesses to the universality of the human condition, the human depravity and guilt and condemnation. So Romans 3, 10 to 12. 12. Romans 3, 10 to 12. Is a quotation from Psalm 14, 1 to 3. And in sequence, these quotations were taken from the Psalms. Just out of interest, I'll just run them real quick. Run through them. Psalm 5, 9, that's Romans 3, 13. And Psalm 140. Verse 3, that's Romans 3, 13b. If you have a B, it means if you have a verse, the second part or section of a verse. You can have A, B, C, depending. Romans 3, 14 is from Psalm 10, verse 7. And Romans 3, 15 to 17 is from Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. 
And Romans 3.18 is from Psalm 36.1. But this is what Paul says. In respect of the universality of sin and the condition of all men and women, he says, as it is written, there's none righteous, none at one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. So here people say, oh, I had a difficult year and I started looking for God. <laughs> no, there's no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Paul says this is what sin has done to all men, Jew or Gentile. It has affected their person in every way and will start with an x-ray from the head. Pay attention. What Paul is doing. He is starting with an x-ray, spiritual x-ray from the head, that is the mind, and down to the pinky toes. There's none righteous. No, not one. There are no hidden righteous people somewhere tucked away on some island that God is not aware of. None. God has looked and he has found none. And remember, Paul is writing to Christians. Paul is writing to Christians. And he says, there's none righteous of themselves, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks after God. So free will teaching is false because it says sinners naturally, without the help of the Holy Spirit, are able to exercise their will, exercise their power, and seek after God and find him. Paul says that's not true. If anyone seeks after God, what they will find is a God after their own image. The true God of the Bible introduces himself to the sinner. He seeks and finds that which was lost. God has to introduce himself. Or have turned aside. And have together become unprofitable. And the idea here by Paul is that of a rotten fruit. Unprofitable is speaking to a rotten fruit. And there's nothing that you can do with a rotten fruit. It is bad. You can't make apple sauce with it. You can't make ketchup with it. So our fruit outside of Christ is rotten before God. There's never been a truly righteous man to ever walk on planet earth other than the Lord Jesus. Even Adam, before the fall, was not righteous. Adam was only innocent. Because the righteous never sin ever. 
Adam was innocent. Being innocent and being righteous are not equivalent. Christ Jesus was holy. He was innocent. He was undefiled. He did not have any sin. Not Adam. Adam was lying to God when God asked him, did you guys eat from that tree? Oh, it's the woman that you gave me, Lord. It's that woman. <laughs> what are you lying? Christ alone, the righteous. Verse 18. Paul continues with his x-ray mission. The throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their throat is an open tomb. An open tomb has a corpse that is at some advanced stage of decomposition. Even the embalming fluid and the burial spices have been overpowered at this point. And so when they open the mouth, the children of man, God only smells of stinkiness. <laughs> but it's God who's speaking. This is not Paul, this is God who's speaking. Because he knows everything that we say and everything that we think. And with the tongues, men and women have practiced deceit. A lot of deceit. Read the news. Listen to the politicians in Washington. It's all deception. Hear what is being preached this morning in the majority of the so-called churches. It's all deceit. But not only that. The poison of asps is also under the lips. Poison. Not honey. But poison. Poison kills. Our lips are naturally full of venom, as James said in James 3.6. And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. And with these references from the Psalms and Isaiah, Paul calls virtually every part of man's body into guilt. Talking. He says the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the hands that shed blood, the eyes, they are filled with sin and rebellion against God. This is why you can't measure your own progress in righteousness because there are just too many body parts that are involved in sin. Too many moving parts. They all contribute something towards your sin, something towards your unrighteousness or condemnation. Some more than others. You can't just tame the mind. You can't just tame the throat, your tongue, and lips. If you tame the mind, 
Your lips will cause you to be condemned. If you tame your whatever, your hands, your feet will do it. <laughs> Even those who can't walk are able to sin. That's why they need the gospel. Their throat and mouth will see to it that they are condemned in sin. Hear this again, verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness? See that the mouth is condemned because of its cursing and bitterness. We curse and we are bitter when things do not go our way. Do we not? Every day we have something to say that is not making us happy, something that we do not like. I've been complaining about the weather the past few two weeks. Just been raining incessantly, raining. I'm like, I'm tired of the rain. That's the casting and bitterness. Because it's God's rain, God is causing it. God says you are guilty and condemned, even if this is all you ever do. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That doesn't take long to find out. If you look around, watch the news, read online, there's blood being shed everywhere, in every corner of this planet. That is what the children of men do. I saw a video this morning of a guy, Rod Rage, in New Jersey. Some woman made some bad decision and they ended up having just a fender bender, just minor accident. And this guy was so mad that he chased her down and ran her over like three times. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That is what sinners do. They are swift to shed blood. Verse 16 and 17, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace with God they have not known. The way of the gospel of Christ they have not known. Because that's the only way to make peace with God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no way that this man would have run over this poor lady if he knew the God of the Bible. There's no way. There's no way that he would have been running over this poor lady because of a fender bender that the insurance is going to be able to pay for. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That is the conclusion of the human condition. No fear of God. No proper respect. No proper regard for him. And yet the scriptures say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now Paul has said circumcision is unprofitable. Now, if circumcision is unprofitable, what then 
is the law about? Why was it given? Was it given to make men and women better people? Paul says whatever the law says. He says to those who are under it. The Jews were under the law. They were under Mount Sinai. The Gentiles were not under the covenant of Mount Sinai. But what was the purpose of the law for them? Or any law for that matter? Was it to make them a righteous people? No. Paul says the law was not given to increase morality. Was not given to make you a better person. But that every mouth may be stopped. May be stopped. From what? From boasting. <laughs> what does the mouth do? Boasting. Boasting to who? Is it boasting to the neighbors? No, because the neighbors did not give the law. It's God who did. From boasting about one's own goodness and righteousness before God. The law was given to just wipe that off. That none should come and beat their little chest before God. And say, look at me. The law was given so that the world, the whole world may become guilty before God. So the ministry of the law was given to produce not righteousness, but guiltiness. And have you condemned in hopelessness? The law is the x-ray machine for sin. It reveals sin. It is the power of sin. The power of sin is in the law. The law gives you a full body scan from the head to the toes as we just land and says all broken bones. And this is the reason why Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 the ministry of death and condemnation. And for a good reason. But how does the law shut up people's mouths? How does it stop people from boasting? Because it tells people to do things that they can do. The law tells people, commands people to do that which they cannot do. Which is to be righteous. It calls them to righteousness, to holiness. It caused men and women to not steal, to not covet, to not commit adultery, to worship the one and true God. And guess what? There's none who follows the law. I don't care if all the whole world comes against me on this matter. I am 120% convinced there's not a person who can do the law apart from Jesus. Because of what the law requires. The law requires perfection in word, thought, and deed. From when you were born and you were on that scale and were weighing seven and a half pounds, 
to the day that you die, not the day, to the second that you die. You have to be perfect in word, thought, and deed. If you miss one point of the law, you are guilty of the whole thing. And people may claim to be doing the law, but they're just boasting because of ignorance. They're boasting because of ignorance. And given the many sins of the mouth, of the lips, the throat, the feet, the hands, there's no way that one can claim to be doing the law. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. The, the mouths have to be closed, zipped up. That's the only way. That's God's zipper of the mouth. That none should bust. This matter is not understood because people are not thinking and hearing what God is saying. The New Testament talks a lot about boasting. God does not want anyone to boast about anything before him. So sin came into the world through the commandment, do not eat. But it was purposeful. It was not by accident. It happened for men and women to find themselves in this situation where they needed help. Where you and I had nothing to offer to God for there to be an exchange of life and righteousness. God's grace and mercy cannot be praised where there's no sin. Grace and mercy only happen to those who are under sin. God knows it. The law was given to amplify that truth. So the problem is not the law. The problem is you and me. We can't give the law what the law requires. So we find ourselves helpless. We find ourselves in the dungeon. In prison, like Barabbas, needing someone to come and stand in our place. So what is the conclusion, Paul, verse 20 of Romans 3? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the flesh means by the works of righteousness that you and I may do. No flesh will be justified as righteous in God's sight. There's no amount of good stuff that you can do for God to say you're righteous. This Oprah does not know. She does not know that. I wish she could. But she does not know this truth. By the deeds of the flesh, by your own performance, by anything that you do, you cannot be declared as righteous before God. Okay? All those born under sin cannot be declared as righteous by something that they do. And Jesus 
is not included in this category because Christ was not born under sin. Christ never came under the power of sin. Christ never did. The law justified Christ as righteous. That's why he was found worthy to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The testimony of the law with respect to Christ as he was going to be crucified came by way of Pilate. Pilate spoke more than he understood. He said, this man is a righteous man. Remember the high priests and the Pharisees have taken Jesus and they're trying him to find something wrong with him. They are inspecting him. The high priest of Israel represents the law. These are Levites. And before the sacrifice could be given to God, it needed to be inspected for blemishes. So the priesthood would inspect the lamb or the God to be offered to God to see if it had any blemishes. And if none were found, then it was good as an offering. So Christ also had to be inspected by the law. So he had to be tried. And the verdict was through Pilate. This is a righteous man. Even Miss Pilate have nothing to do with this righteous man. Even the Roman soldiers, surely this was the righteous man. So Christ alone was righteous. But the law was given to give the knowledge of sin. And Jew and Gentile have a knowledge of sin. For the Jew by the explicit written card and the Gentile by way of conscience. The Gentile naturally, they still knew right from wrong through the law of conscience, not as well defined as what was written for the Jews, but still they knew if they were doing right or wrong. So the conscience has enough law to give a sinner the knowledge of sin, also to give God the right to condemn them. You do not need a thousand commandments of law to have the knowledge of sin. Adam had only one, (laughs) and there was too much commandment for him. It proved to be fatal to him and us. My brothers and sisters, one commandment to do or to not do is too much commandment for a sinner. It will get you killed. That's what, that's what that is saying. One commandment. Just one commandment. People come and say, oh, we have all these commandments that we are supposed to be keeping. None of us is keeping those commandments. (laughs) So all these people are condemned. They are guilty before God. The redeemed already have a knowledge of sin. Otherwise, they would not have come to Christ. You and I, we know that we are sinners every day. We fall short every day. And that's why we keep running back to the cross, keep running back to God's grace and mercy. 
And what was Paul's point? Paul is working his gospel pieces. He's going somewhere. Paul is going somewhere. This is not the end of his argument. He is stitching things. He's weaving, crocheting the gospel. He is amplifying the teaching of the human spiritual condition and saying it is helplessly condemned and unable to redeem itself. And unless men and women agree with this prognosis from God, then they cannot believe the true gospel. The law cannot save anyone from sin and its condemnation. The law does not make a sinner better. It only reminds them of their inability to keep it. So what happens now? It seems Paul has successfully taken the wind from the sails of those at Rome. (laughs) And it should be because, like I said, we cannot appreciate God's grace and mercy unless we understand the human condition. So how do we come out of that? Because if we end here, I'm going to leave you condemned. (laughs) Your mouth will condemn you, your throat will condemn you, even as you are driving back home. How do we come out of Romans 3, 10 to 18, or 10 to 17? Because many messages... As I said earlier, I have been preached and will be preached today that do not help anyone who is from Romans 1 country. I was born and raised in Romans 1 country. That's my birth certificate. Yeah? I need the gospel that helps the moralist who is helpless in Romans chapter 2. We want to hear the gospel that will help the lawbreaker who is condemned in Romans chapter 2 also and going into chapter 3. Many even in false religion are saying this is Holy Week. I've been hearing it for the past 6-7 days. Oh, this is Holy Week. Holy Week. And Some people have taken off days from work for the Holy Week to observe the Holy Week. There's much pomp and fanfare but there's no gospel so much talk about Jesus and his resurrection and yet still bringing no good news but this is the understanding the resurrection presupposes the death of Christ and the death of Christ had reason for it it was not a random death, was not an accidental death. The Lord Jesus was not overcome with sickness, was not overcome with COVID-19. He did not die because of his sin, because death is the wages of sin. The Lord died because of the sin of others, his people, called the saints, 
the holy ones called the elect of God. He died because he was standing for them to make a payment, to make satisfaction of what they owed God, a debt which they could not pay. He died because the sins of his people were imputed to him, a legal charge to his account. The sins of his people were not infused to his person because if that would have happened, then he would not have been any better than the priesthood of the Old Testament, than the sacrifices of the law. He would have been defiled. So he took on our sins by a legal charge, which is what imputation means. And yet, he died because the soul that sins must die. But God accounted him as a sinner. Remember again, by imputation. Jesus remained holy. He remained righteous. He remained undefiled. Even as he was going on Mount Calvary. He was stricken by God for the sins of his people, as I said. And Isaiah will help us to close our message. Let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 will give us some understanding. And we begin at verse 8. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. The Lord Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. And that is a very complicated way to say he died. But see that for. For the transgressions of my people. For tells us the reason why he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he died because of the transgressions of my people. And that means he died on account of the transgressions, of the iniquities, of the sins of a certain people called my people. The chosen of Christ are my people. They are the my people. Because not all people are my people with respect to Jesus. And that means Christ accomplished a substitutionary death on behalf and for the benefit of a people called my people. His people. He did not die for everyone. He died for my people. Verse 10. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the resume of Christ. This is the accomplishment of Christ. Jesus accomplished something when he died. God bruised him. God bruised his son and put him to grief. And he was pleased to do it. God was pleased to bruise his own son. When Christ was made an offering for sin, the bruising and grief of Christ was by God and not by the devil and was with respect to sin, was respect to the payment of sin, was respect to the payment or shedding of blood, the shedding of blood, the agony of the Christ with his nails, scarred hands and feet and saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the aftermath of that, Isaiah says, and this son shall see his seed, his children. Question. How can one who has died see their seed? A woman who dies during childbirth does not get to see their baby because they died. But Christ did see his seed. And that means he did not remain dead. (laughs) And also means that he did not have a miscarriage. He did not have a miscarriage. He actually held his baby, his church, my people, when he gave birth to his church on Mount Calvary. The good pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The good pleasure of the Lord was your salvation. And it prospered in the hands of Christ, not in your hands, not in my hands. It prospered. He cannot fail. He did not fail. And none of his seed shall be missing. None shall be lost because Christ redeemed them. He made an offering that was acceptable to God for them. And God has to honor that work of Christ Because it pleased him. It satisfied him. God is righteous and holy. And so if he got the payment, he delivers the goods. God is not gangster. He doesn't play gangster tactics. When he has been paid, he delivers. Christ paid, and so he delivers. All those that were given him, he loses not one. The Father will see to it. Christ will see to it. The Holy Spirit will see to it. So, 
How does God do that? The days of the sin-bearing Messiah shall be prolonged. How do you prolong the days of one who has died? You prolong the days here and now by giving them some vitamin supplements. Give them some vitamin D3. Yeah? Take them to some yoga class and exercise and whatever. That's how you prolong this flesh. But how do you prolong the days of one who has died? By the resurrection. By the resurrection. Because remember he was cut off from the land of the living. And by the resurrection, the days of the Messiah have been prolonged. But why resurrect one who has died? (laughs) Why resurrect him? Verse 11, Isaiah 53. You shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The Christ rose from the dead because the labor of his soul in our salvation satisfied God's justice for his people. It took away the wrath of God. God is the one who saw the labor of Christ. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. God saw it. God saw the labor of Christ. That is all that matters. Stop your novel gazing, trying to see your own labor. If God is pleased with the labor of Christ, then salvation is done. Salvation is a done deal because God is pleased. He saw the labor when it happened. If God is pleased with the labor of Christ, then he can't be pleased with your own labor to the same end. Your labor in righteousness cannot redeem you or anyone. Your own pregnancy and labor to try and birth your own salvation is going to result in a miscarriage. It's not going to work. Only the labor of Christ is what gives birth to babies who are called the children of God. (laughs) This is why Christ on the cross, he had the fluids of birth, water and blood. Because he was giving birth to my people. This labor of Christ The birth pangs of Christ on Mount Calvary is alone the basis of eternal life, of forgiveness, and justification. Don't look to your own performance because you're going to be righteous for two seconds. Then you feel condemned again. Righteous for five minutes and you feel condemned again. And yet God says he's satisfied. The text says again, verse 11b of Isaiah 53, almost done. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify the many. For he shall bear their iniquities. 
by his knowledge. Christ shall justify the many. His knowledge, not my knowledge, not your knowledge, not your doing, not your willing, but his knowledge. That is why he has become for us, my people, the wisdom from God. Because you can't have wisdom if you have no knowledge. He has become wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He shall justify and has justified the many whom he calls, as I said, very specific, the my people. He bore their iniquities. He carried their iniquities. How many? How many sins did Jesus pay for you? And which ones? All of them. He carried them away as the victim. That is what he came to do. And because he accomplished the payment, and because he satisfied fully God's justice, it was impossible for him to remain in the grave. And so, on the third day, he arose again. He rose again according to the scriptures. He rose according to the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. That's what Jesus said. So the resurrection was saying, and he saying, Christ Jesus made full payment for the salvation of those who were his people, even though they would be found in Romans 1 country, even though they may have been some moralists among them, some who thought were law keepers, and Paul is going to expand on that matter of election in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and talk about consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh. Okay? God has chosen the foolish things, the despised things of the world, the base things. Yeah? These are all coming from Romans 1 country. <laughs> so are we better than they? Are we better than anyone in respect of righteousness? No, we are not. But yes, we are because of Christ. Our only boss is Christ. Yeah? Otherwise, everybody is under sin. All men and women, even the best among them, are all under sin. If we stand and should stand, it is only because of Christ. And we'll end here in verse 19 and 20 of Romans 3. Paul again says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. If you're not using the law to stop someone's mouth, then you're not using it right. <laughs> and how do you stop someone's mouth? Tell them what the law demands. Perfection. That's the only way to kill it. You kill them by that. 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be declared as righteous in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. No boasting, my brothers and sisters, if you should boast, boast in Christ alone, boast in his cross alone, by which you have been crucified to the world and the world to you. Because if righteousness came by the Lord, then Christ died in vain. Happy resurrection weekend. The Lord is more than resurrected. He is also seated on the right hand of majesty on high, ever making intercession for his people. Because he made an end to the purification of sin. So we have a very wonderful Savior. He's worthy of glory and adoration. Do not get tired of Jesus. He's the only one that matters and the only one who cares. All right? Praise God. We're done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again for these many words that have been spoken this morning. We thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit to teach us the things of Christ, the matter of his death, why he died, and why he resurrected, because the work was done. And your people, we come with that testimony, boasting only on his cross, boasting only in his righteousness, boasting that we've been made partakers of his eternal inheritance because of the grace and mercy alone. We pray for your people, be with them, in these turbulent times, provide for them in every way that they need, physically and spiritually. We await the return of the King. Lord, we honor and glorify you. Be with us in our going in and out. May you return us again and give us the same testimony. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, my people.